Steve and Kevin review New Capenna for Vintage on episode 105 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 105 of So Many Insane Plays, our Streets of New Capenna Vintage Review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. announcements this episode we don't really have anything new to share i don't think i think we have a little bit of housekeeping just to point out that we're not going to have a report card yet for kamigawa neon dynasty even though it has been a a bit since we recorded that episode not quite enough time has elapsed and so maybe our next set review will have our report card for kamigawa but we're here to review streets of new capenna and as we always like to do i want to start with the mechanics Streets of New Capenna is Magic's 92nd expansion set, released just this past April 29. Officially released. Officially, yeah. Now we know those release dates are staggered a bit vis-a-vis pre-release, Magic Arena, Magic Online. But we do have the benefit of about a month's worth of results behind us for these cards, so as has been the case for most recent set reviews, we will be informed by some real results in a couple of cases. And spoiler alert, two of the cards we're about to review have won vintage challenges. Wow. Two of them. But before we get into that, mechanics. So as usual, Capenna introduces some new mechanics and reuses many old ones. Many old ones. Some of the themes that aren't new to folks will be vehicles, treasures, lots of treasures. Um, I don't know, too many other things to list. Cycling. But some of the things that are new and interesting include Connive. Now, Connive is a new triggered ability that says draw X, then discard X. And if you discard a non-land permanent, the creature that this connive is on gets a plus one, plus one counter. So all connives are on creatures? So far. So far. Yep. So it's not like we can't get like a a one mana enchantment (laughs) that says like, sacrifice a creature, draw four, discard four. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That such a thing is possible, I believe, but does not exist yet. It, it okay. would be interesting, though. I mean, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility, even for this set or the commander part of it, to put connive onto a non-creature. And because this set does have certain things that put plus one, plus one counters onto non-creature permanents. But the thrust of connive is giving a boost to creatures not drawing, or, or is it, it the drawing? I don't know. That depends on your perspective. It is a loot every time you do it, so it is looting. And it's loot equal the the connive number? That's right. And... so. The um, what is the range of connive numbers in the set? Well, almost all Max of them, al- almost all of them actually don't have a number. They just say it connives, and when there's no number present, the implication is one. But there is how, how is that implied? Uh, how is that implied? It's in the rules is how it's implied. But okay, there is one card that connives x times, I think, and so is, I think the implication is, is that it's it's one unless it says otherwise. 
But if it's the same thing as looting, how is how, is it just a duplicate of loot then? Well, or is it a, is it a scalable loot? Is that the difference? Two things. One, loot hasn't been keyworded. Okay, and I assumed two, it had been. It's, it's actually a so functional difference. No, it's not. Not yet. It should <laughs> be, and it probably will be, but not yet. There's a functional difference in that it looks for what you discard. When you discard a non-land permanent, the creature that connived gets a plus one, plus one counter. Yeah. And so even if it were just looting, it's, it's more than just looting in that sense. And that plus one, plus one counter is pretty relevant for the, the connive card we're going to review because the, the tempo aspects really do matter. I see. Yeah. So, so thus far, what's the maximum connive number? Well, I think if memory serves, I haven't done a comprehensive analysis, but I think everything is one except for the one card that connives X. So it, there's one scaling card. Got it. Yeah. So another new mechanic that is of interest to us, although less so for Vintage, is Casualty. Casualty is a additional cost when casting a spell. And I'm not going to read all the rules, but basically Casualty has a number also. One, two, three, X. When you're casting a spell, if, it's the, if, it's, um, if you have a creature in play, you may um, sacrifice that creature. If that creature's power has, is greater than or equal to the casualty, casualty cost, then you copy the spell. Oh my god. Go over that one more time. <laughs> it, it, it turns every spell into a copyable thing if you sacrifice a creature, sacrifice a creature. of required size. Gee. Casualty 2 means you say you need to sacrifice a creature with power 2 or greater. It's a Grixis mechanic for the set, and when one of the one of the commander decks is built around it, which I've already put together. It's quite fun. The, um, the mechanic is not on many powerful effects, and so it's not... I would argue that it's probably not suitable for vintage just because it requires expendable creatures, right? Which we have <laughs> yeah. some of, but not many, not enough. And it would have to be on a very powerful, specific kind of effect that you want to duplicate in the vintage context. Yeah. It's fork, a very narrow Fork thing. effects have proven not to be very powerful in vintage. Agreed. I, I think that the record of forking is astonishingly bad. <laughs> With the exception of Storm, of course. Yes, uh, being and a, I am not calling caveat. Storm fork. <laughs> Storm is fork on uh, steroids. It's, yeah. Exponentially it's really, more relevant. I mean, because Storm is usually built, like, it, it's built into the card, right? It's like, oh, you yeah. don't need a separate card to fork. It, it's triggers 100% of the time. You're right. Yeah. Another new mechanic from Streets of New Capenna is Alliance, which you may know better as Creature Fall. <laughs> Very intuitive. If when a creature comes into play, it triggers the Alliance ability. Not much to be said from a vintage context because most of the alliance effects have to be scaled down very low in order to not be overpowered and limited. And so we don't have a, a big vintage-worthy alliance so, ability. So all of these, all three of these new mechanics are creature-centric. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. Disappointing. Though Connive is um, not so much focused on the creature, but requires a creature. Which I think is a, a somewhat yeah, meaningful distinction. Yeah, centric doesn't mean focused. It just means okay. that they're It's definitely centers. on a creature. Yeah, well, and the next one is no exception either, and that's Blitz. Blitz is just like Dash, only it has some additional riders about what happens to the creature at the end of the turn. It's an additional cost. Remind me what Dash is. Well, Dash means... So both of these cards are an alternate yeah. cost for creatures, and when you cast them this way, they gain haste. So that's the similarity. Yes. With Dash, like with Ragavan, the creature comes back to your hand at the end yep. of the turn. With Blitz, the creature is sacrificed at the end of the turn. And there's additional upside. When you sack it, you draw a card. I see. So it's just... I would like that on Ragavan sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so think of... I know. Think of Blitz as uh, Ball Lightning. Ball Lightning, but you get a card when it dies. So like... Okay. Wow. That's very powerful. Can be. And, but again, in order to not overbalance Limited, there's not very many truly high power uh, Blitz creatures. And 
the the ones that max out on power are either complicated in a way that doesn't help vintage, like say Jaxus the Troublemaker, who is kind of like a kiki jiki variant, or do just incremental things that are easier to get in other ways in vintage. They didn't power up anything in this set the way they did Ragavan, for example. There's nothing basically you would want to blitz in this set for vintage. Uh, I talked about alliance already. There are there are new types of counters every set. New types of counters in this set they introduced shield counters, which effectively mean it prevents uh, permanent from being destroyed or damaged one time. Per, a We've seen things like that before. Uh, absolutely, we have. Yes, variants of it. I can't think of the right example, but um, yeah, I know exactly what you're, you're picturing. Anyway, also very creature centric, and also preventing a thing that just is little less likely to happen in vintage. And that's it. That's it for the brand new mechanics, as you observed. Almost entirely creature centric. Connive has a little bit of um, steps out of the creature realm a little bit from some utility, and that's something we're going to talk about to a great extent, but nothing earth-shattering here in New Capenna. So let's dive into some individual cards, and this first one is one that cracked me up the first time I saw it because of our last set review. One of the things that you and I observed during our last set review when we were talking about one-cost legendary creatures, CMC of one, we said, hey, there's never been a blue one. Well, here she is. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Well, yes, we did say that, but <laughs> all right. And and we said, too, that if there was a blue one, it would have to be pretty restrictive. We knew that if it had any kind of, uh, you know, well, there- snowball-y, powerful ability that like Ragavan does or something like that, that it would be way too powered by virtue of being in blue. And well, let's just be clear. Yeah. There are one mana blue creatures that are playable. So I included this card on our list just because it happened right after the moment when we said, hey, this has never happened, and that if they did it, it'd have to be pretty restrictive. And this card is no exception. It's a blue creature. Well, let me just tell you what Errant is. Errant Street Street Artist for you. Flash Defender Haste, which is Attack of a Salad. Activated ability. One you, tap, tap, copy target spell. You control that wasn't cast. You may choose new targets for the copy. And she's a 0-3. This is a plant for the casualty ability in Grixis in this set. That's where it's primarily aimed at. When you fork something, she lets you pay two mana to fork it again. And that's what she's targeted at. And for all the reasons you've already alluded to, this card is not vintage playable. It need not apply. I just think it's pretty hilarious that out of hundreds of episodes that we've done, okay, 100 plus, the the one time we say there's never been a one mana blue legend is the moment that it gets printed. I love this card for EDH, but otherwise it's there for a laugh. Okay, something that bears a little bit more analysis. New Triomes. Now, they're not called Triomes, sadly, much to the the lament of the community. But we have a new cycle of three basic types, just like the Triomes. They're the, um, not the Wedges this time, they're the the Shards. So we've got Esper, Grixis, Bant, etc. They don't have those names. They're named after the house leaders in Capenna and their various accoutrements. Rafine's Towers, Anders Lounge. Spar's headquarters, etc. One thing we know from past evidence, Steve, is that the Triomes were sparsely playable. Occasionally, in the right three-color, mostly controlish deck, they helped they helped fill a need for stretched mana bases. Matt Murray famously, I think, used the Jeskai one. What do you think about the notion of just spicing in more of these in color combinations that are pretty actively played in vintage right now? Grixis, Esper, Bant. Well, the place that I start when thinking about any new multicolor land is the existence of uh, of alternative mana production options. Mm-hmm. And because the vintage card pool is 
verging on 30 years of depth, you have an incredible array of options already that are in many ways far superior to anything that would come into play tapped. So, I mean, you can go back to the original Five Color Land, City of Brass, which I think is still playable in the right. I mean, well, there's, yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, there's um, there's the uh, Mana Confluence, right, which is the superior City of Brass, mm-hmm. I think, in, in general. Um, there's Forbidden Orchard. Um, so, I mean, there are already Five Color Lands. Gemstone Mine occasionally sees play um, that can be used to generate whatever the requisite color is such that, you know, and they all have slight disadvantages or advantages, but I think experience has shown that if people need consistent mana of a particular color, there are ways to build decks to achieve that, that goal, you know, that, that are more than compensate for whatever the drawback is. So in the case of forbidden orchard, it's not really a drawback in most cases, if you're playing oath in other cases, it's irrelevant to generate tokens. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's difficult to imagine in a format where the demands of mana production are so intense from the outset of the game that you would ever want to play a land, the, the, a land that comes into play tapped. The cost of that is just overwhelming in terms of foregone opportunity cost mm-hmm. relative to the rel- you know, relatively marginal impact of, say, losing a life to mana conflict. Now, I, I recognize that that's not quite the case when you have a fetchable triome, but it is enough of the case in the opening hand. You can't fetch, you know, fetch this and then use it immediately, or within hand play it and use it immediately. Such that I think that they're presumptively the default position. The presumption, the prevailing presumption, is that these cards are not playable unless there's an overwhelming uh, use case that can be made, and I think that that holds. And yeah. I also think. Just to elaborate on that further, the printing of um, was a prismatic vista, which allows you to get any basic land, um, fills a niche in the other direction, right? Which is to say, you know, if you have a sufficient number of basics in a multicolor deck, let's say a three-color deck, you can get that and use it immediately off of the vista. So if you're playing Grixis or you know Bug, mm-hmm. you can get and you have one of each basic, you can get that use immediately so prismatic vista is in a sense i mean certainly polluted delta and all of the ordinary fetch lands are functional triomes right because if you're playing a three color deck polluted delta can get you if you're mm-hmm. bug it can get you green blue or black on the spot um but i think Pris- prismatic vista is is somewhat that case as well so i and then this card is also vulnerable in all the ways that right it, oh yeah that ordinary dual lands are if not more so. So I think fundamentally the the question is opportunity cost um, against alternative mana production possibilities. And I could never... I mean, Kevin, is there a current case of lands that come into play tapped whose primary usage is to produce mana that see play? Can you point to a single case right now? Primary usage, no. I can't... No, there's no way. Um... There are cards that come into play... Lands that come into play tapped um, where where they're you use them for other purposes like the original Bizaju, right? Yeah, and um, Bojuka Bog is a good example. Bojuka I mean, Bog, but yeah. you're right. That's <laughs> that's there for its spell like ability, not not its mana production. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I, I don't think there is a land that fits that category that's played in Vintage actively. 
And I think that the time I was alluding back to when Raugren Triome was used, for example, number one, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Matt Murray, and I think he was being a little cheeky, as he likes to be with new cards. But also, it's in the sort of deck that intends to go to a longer game and intends to still have diverse restrictions on its mana late into the game, right? The sort of deck that's playing, well, to use the Jeskai context, the sort of deck that's playing like Mana Drain and maybe some other cost-prohibitive card like, uh, I don't know, Wear Tear or something, where you really do, late into the game, still have restrictive mana requirements. Or you just want to be able to hold up Flusterstorm, Pyroblast, and Swords to Plowshares at the end of the turn consistently. Those are the kind of decks, and those kind of decks have kind of fallen out of favor in the metagame. There's not really an active standstill deck or landstill type deck that's not still trying to be really fast to the board. And one other observation, Urza Saga. Urza Saga has put even more dramatic cost on opportunity costs for the other lands in your mana base, such that you can't afford to miss out when you really need it. And conversely, Urza Saga sometimes offers um, mana fixing right? It's not its primary purpose, but if you need to get out that Black Lotus to fix your mana or that on-color mox you're missing, it, it serves that purpose. So I think a mixed bag of things that you've observed and just current metagame trends says that these triomes, old or new, are just hopelessly outmoded, at least for now. Yeah, the only way I can predict play for these is in the longer term, if we got some kind of slowing of the metagame, and a lot would have to conspire to get to that point. All right, let's talk about a card that probably needs no introduction for the vintage audience. So this is, for the few of you who have not been following along lately, this is Ledger Shredder. 1U, Bird Advisor, quality, quality type line. Flying, whenever a player casts their second spell each turn, Ledger Shredder connives, and it's a 1-3. So to be clear, any player and any turn, which means it, cannot, it can trigger, in a one-player game, it can trigger twice each turn. Something. Potentially, if you and your opponent both cast two or more spells. And I believe part of the value of this card, Steve, goes back to the rider on on connive with the plus one, plus one counters. Because part of the value of this threat is how quickly it can scale up. Even with two triggers, it becomes a 3-5 flyer. 3-5 is... It's a growing creature. Well, Fun. yeah. But th and, and with only two triggers, 3-5 becomes an incredibly relevant size in the format. It kills off all of the middling utility creatures, oofs and hull breachers and just all of them, basically. And it sits and lives through the big bizarre creatures. Like, that is not the biggest, not um, not Hogak, of course, but it sits through Hollow One and Vengevine. So it takes a little bit of work, but it's not hard to achieve. And this creature can become a size that's really beneficial. So I'll hand it over to you. Well, I think your well, yeah, is a little bit, a little bit facile because... This card is not superficially a growing creature. It's not a growing threat oh. by design. Okay. I mean, it is clearly one in practice, but I mean, take, I mean, uh, just, I could give you a, a list, right? So like Delver of Secret is clearly a card that is, upon certain conditions is designed to grow. Uh, you know, all of the other more explicit and more direct ones from, you know, Quirion Dryad to Kiln Fiend, etc., have explicit conditions built in to grow. But they're, it's not just that they have conditions built in to grow. They have conditions that are self-evidently designed for the players to meet them in order that they could grow easily. Whereas this has a, a one that is not so obviously designed 
for that purpose. It's 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 in that in-between space. It's sort of like a liminal space between something that looks like it's designed to dissuade your opponent from playing spells and therefore triggering it, <laughs> right? And so it looks almost like it's like, I dare you, a kind of I dare you effect, right? Um, so I don't think it's so obvious and, and you know, I mean, obvious is, is a big word, but what I'm saying <laughs> is it's not superficially in the mode of Monastery Mentor, where it's clearly designed to ramp up quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, it, there's some superficial ambiguity about it, but in practice, it's going to ramp up fairly quickly. What's the um, the blue red growing creature that has seen a lot of play in the uh, the the sprite in the, the breach um, decks? Yes. Um, what's the qualifier in the front of that thing? I kept wanting to say scrib sprite because I've been thinking about alpha. Um, but that's that is the most recent iteration of the growing threat of the growing threat in in, in vintage that sprite that dragon. Has, yeah, sprite dragon. I mean, sprite dragon comes from a long. <laughs> A long lineage of of growing threats, right? From uh, myth realized, scal- scab clan berserker, monastery mentor, young pyromancer, mm-hmm. um, thing in the ice is 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 among them. Managorger Hydra, Managorger mm. Hydra, um, and Quirion Dryad being one of perhaps the original. But the point is that this is in not in the it, it's it is a growing threat, but it's not in the mold of a growing threat. I think that's really important. I think you're right about that. It's kind of like the difference between facial complexity and strategic complexity. Yes. Right. Like Managorger Hydra is like, there's almost nothing you can do to advance the game that doesn't (laughs) cause it to grow, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Its scope is just so broad and encompassing. Yeah. That it's, I mean, you look at that card, it's impossible to escape the inference that the designers wanted this thing to grow. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just look at this card, you could there is ambiguity about that. There's doubt about that. Where mm-hmm. it could, you know, it, it's imagine if a card just said, um, "It's an enchantment." Whenever a player plays a second, and there is there are cards like this. What's the um, the red red creature that's like a shock creature? It's like whenever you play a second card, you just you shock you get shocked. Um, or, it's a, I, or it's there's I, a variance of that. I'm thinking of all I can think of is pyrostatic pillar and and the, yeah. There's a pyrostatic pillar creature. It's pyrostatic pillar. The second card you play is at zero to zero to three mana cost or pillar. Yeah, it, that's the you're right. That one's conditional on cost. <clears throat> and the then point is that you no go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. There's the RR um, enchantment creature, and I already forgot the name of that too. I think about that. <laughs> so, when we're dealing with tens of thousands of cards, our memories are really stretched. <laughs> it's just. But I um, think people know what we're talking about. Eidolon of the Great Revel is what I was thinking. Yes, Eidolon, yeah. So, there, I, and then we've taught, you know, I've certainly noodled around with, um, there was a, 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 a red-blue one creature that I, I've noodled around with for a long time. I think it was whenever you play a second spell per turn, you draw a card. What was that oh, creature? Oh, that's Jorien. Jorien, yeah. yeah. I had a spell where I was where I was noodling around with Jorien to, to not much success. <laughs> um. But the point is that like Jorian is not a consistent, reliable thing, and therefore it's not a given that a player, either yourself or your opponent or opponents, are going to be playing a second spell each turn. In fact, it's the experience of Jorian demonstrates it's quite possible to not not play a second spell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, Jorian would see play, and it doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if if players consistently triggered their second spell. Jorian would be a phenomenal card, and it's not. Yeah. Um, 
Now, there's there's obviously differences between Jorianne and Ledger Shredder, but the the I think there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. The point, the main point I'm trying to make is this is not in the obvious, explicit mold of a growing creature. Yet in practice, I think it is. And I think one of the things that it has going for it, it's really quite important. I think I think the flying puts it over the top. <laughs> but I think the thing that makes it quite important is that, and this is something I've written a lot about in my Gush book, which is that the archetypal growing threat is designed to be able to play, be played quickly and then grow after you put it into play. Mm-hmm. So ideally, you want it to cost two or two mana that can be played off an off-color Mox, like Quirion Dryad or, uh, or Young Pyromancer, or it can be played off a single land like Mithrealized or Delver of Secrets, right? And this really nicely fits that mold. And the reason is because you want to be able to play it on turn one so that every opportunity for growing is maximized, right? And and this really does that. So if you go Mox land this, it means your opponent can't go Mox preordain, Mox creature without triggering this, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the connive, just to be clear, it gives it, you draw one and discard one, right? And then, and it gets a plus one, plus one. If you discard a non-land. What? If you discard a non-land. Non-land card, yeah. So, um, so your point is that if you go first and you play this first, and then your opponent plays mock spell, this gets plus one, plus one, as long as you discard a non-land. Mm-hmm. And then on your turn, you can do the exact same thing. And if you can bait your opponent into playing two spells on your turn, then suddenly this already has four power and you're attacking on turn two for four power, right? Potentially. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you can continue to discard non-land spells, right? That's right. So you could theoretically be (laughs) a four, five, uh, sorry, a four, six Mm -hmm. (laughs) on turn two. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. The, the connive ability, I would argue, is, and I didn't want to get into this too much when we were doing the mechanics. I wanted to do it here. But the connive ability, I think, is subtly uh, better in vintage than in other formats because we get a portion of, of our mana yeah, from non-land sources reliably. And in addition to that, this card, for the reasons you just observed about its mana cost, fits the mold of a deck that rewards you for playing additional non-land sources, right? Not every deck in Vintage that's like a, an, an aggro control kind of deck, in fact, most decks with growing creatures historically don't always play all the Moxen. Or Mana Crypt. Yeah, exactly. But this Mana Cost Constructor rewards you for exactly as you said, going Polluted Delta into a, a dual land and then a Mox Emerald and playing this out. And further... Because it's connive and because it rewards you for discarding non-land cards, it also gives you a use for the extra, especially off-color Moxen that you draw later on, right? In in any other format, that would be a land that you, maybe an extraneous land you don't need, and you're not getting the benefit of connive counters, but in Vintage you are. And so there's all, all kinds of layers to why how this card is structured and how the connive ability fits in the format that are, I think, amplifying the utility and value of this card. Right. Uh, I think one of the hardest things for me to realize and accept in the last six years of Vintage was moving away from the low mana curve design to embracing Monastery Mentor's necessity for running essentially a full complement of Moxon. Mm. And the people who realized that 
mentor necessitated the full complement of moxin i think benefited in terms of performance and i stubborn it's one of those things where you realize thing something a little too late than you should have because you're wedded to certain principles mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah and 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 that that i mean i eventually caught on and and had great success getting second place in an NYSE with mentor but and you know i we got an opportunity to play i think it was the second season of the Vintage Super League with Mentor and the beginning and middle of the season and I had four Mentor deck and I just couldn't <laughs> maximize it. I couldn't win <laughs> because I was wedded to a, a certain kind of gush design. Mm-hmm. Um, but this rewards that Mentor type gush design <laughs> rather than the kind that is optimized around Dryad, Delver, and Pyromancer. Mm-hmm. The reasons that you said, I think. I think if you're playing this, it's interesting. I, I think the people who use Sprite Dragon and the Breach decks sh- might want to consider whether to use this instead because it has so much synergy with Breach, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, superfluous Breaches, superfluous mana, you know, Lion's Eye Diamond you don't want to play right now, just bin that thing. You know, Lotus Petal, which is used in those decks. Um, I think there's a lot of... I think this might be the superior card, and not just because... It, it probably doesn't grow as fast as Sprite Dragon, which is clearly a disappointment. I mean, Definitely. a disadvantage. Um, but the the looting, quasi-looting capacity means that you're optimizing your decisions at every point of the game that I think really rewards strong players. Definitely. And I don't I don't know where that balance is going to be, uh, you know, where that equilibria point is. <laughs> but it's it's a it's going to be a really interesting one, I think. Totally agree. I do enjoy the levers that you get to pull mid-game with this because of all the decision-making. Your opponent, too, right? You said it. This is a, a discouraging aspect to some spell casting, and I've seen it in action already, and it's true. It's kind of analogous to Mystic Remora in that way. Yes. I think that's what I was trying to... I was trying to come up with an example like Eidolon or Pyrostrike Pillar. I think Remora is a better analog. Not quite the same thing, but yeah. a better analog. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be quite frightening. You know, it's like, you know, it, it, against some players, that that decision to play that spell is going to be very hard to cost benefit out. Mm-hmm. But when you play that spell and they suddenly unlock the card they needed or draw a Black Lotus or an Ancestral Recall, you're going to be kicking yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really hard, really punishing in vintage. That's totally true. I agree. And I've seen it happen already. So... There's another aspect of this card I think we should address, and that it's vulnerability to certain removal. Pyroblast is a good example. We haven't had too many base blue threats in vintage decks over the course of the last several years. There are some notable exceptions, of course. Delver, Dragon. Yeah, Delver, Sprite Dragon, Hullbreacher are good examples. But even among those, Hullbreacher, for example, is uh, you know more of a mid-game threat. Delver is trades at least evenly with Pyroblast in terms of mana. Those that cost more than one mana and trade with Pyroblast still are always subject to, I think, extra scrutiny. Sprite Dragon is especially tricky because, because due to its mana cost, it's it's two, of course, but we always describe two designated mana as being sort of like two and a half in this format. You can't always cast it on two. It's not always a two drop. And it doesn't get accelerated very well by Moxon. So we know that Sprite Dragon lives in that space where you're being very purposeful about if you play it on turn two and what it's doing and what it's opening you up to. This card, though, I think 
because of the ease in casting and the deck construction that you're tilted toward, as you as you said, it's much more like a one drop. And if you go landmark shredder on the play against an opponent who has pyroblast on the ready, you're still yes, you're losing a little bit of tempo, just pure mana quantity, but you're still putting them behind on board by giving them the the threat of remove this or respond to my second turn spell. And so the fact that this so readily comes out on one, I think serves to pretty strongly diminish the the blowback from Pyroblast. I agree. I think you can recoup a lot of the... You can create a lot of virtual card advantage. Yes, that it's too. Not, it's not going to be... That's, it's not going to be the kind of virtual card advantage you get from just looting. You know, here's a superfluous land I don't need. It's gone. You're going to have to be selecting among spells. And in, on occasion, you will want to discard lands. Naturally. But that's a fine trade. If you can loot, if this just allows you to draw a card and discard a superfluous land, the fact that it doesn't gain plus one, plus one, who cares? <laughs> right? And if it really matters that it has the counter due to context or your opponent's creatures, then you have to, a different calculus to make, and you might yes. make a sacrifice. This, But this giving is, you the choice is very powerful. I just want to say that this card is, I think, the epitome of simple complexity, mm. which is, of course, an oxymoron, but... <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's a perfect example of a card that has very simple text, easily understandable and easily applicable text, but that has a cumulative s- series of sequential decision-making mm-hmm. whose, whose ultimate cumulative impact is enormous over the shaping the outcome of the game. Mm-hmm. That if, you, if this triggers, let's just say just four times, which might be on the low end, I, don't, I haven't played this card yet, but... Let's just say it triggers four times. The number of decisions that are bound up in each trigger is enormous. Just a single trigger means you draw a card, which you have no control over, <laughs> but then you immediately have to decide, at, you know, basically you, you have options equal to X, where X is the number of cards in your hand. So if you have six cards in hand, maybe five to six might be the norm, that means that you are essentially making, you know, a, 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 a selection decision where you're weighing the balance between, I don't know, what is, um, you know, six choose one, but you're essentially balancing them each against each other, right? It's like the number of options is enormous because of the implications of each, right? It's like if I discard this card, like certain cards have synergies together. So if you discard this card, then you're ruling out a particular line of play. Or if you discard this card, you're ruling out another line of play. Or you're essentially committing to a particular line. And in Vintage... So much is about maximizing your line options as you pursue your strategic strategic objectives. So, for example, if you decide to discard a blue spell, it may mean that your ability to cast Force of Will is greatly diminished. So maybe you want to discard the Force of Will. But if you decide to keep, you know, let's say, something that complements Tinker, I don't know what that might be. Maybe you need an artifact, and you know, because you want to find Tinker. Well, an off-color Mox. An off-color Could mox. be it. What happens if you, you draw a Tinker? <laughs> you know, or if you want to hold a keep the Flusterstorm in hand, or if you want to go the Force of Will route. You know, you have to make choices, hard choices at every point in the game, and every one of those choices is essentially a compound decision about what your opponent's going to do, what you're trying to do, what you have in hand versus what your objectives are, and how best to achieve those, pursue and achieve those objectives given your opponent's current resources and available plans and options. 
Mm-hmm. And it's because so many of those, so much of that information is hidden, both in terms of what's at the top of your deck, you know, what your opponent has, you're making essentially implicit cost-benefit decisions with imperfect information every point. And if you commit to a line, let's say your first decision is, okay, I've got, just imagine you, this is triggered on your opponent's second turn and your hand, Kevin, is let's say off-color mocks, um, force of will, uh, fluster storm, and let's make it an, a, 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 like a, a pyroblast, mm-hmm. something like that. Or, or, or let's not do a pyroblast. Let's do a, um, let's do a, a what's the hybrid burn shatter card people are play, been playing? The, the new one. A braid. The, yeah, let's say a, bra- no, well, there's a more recent, yeah, let's say it's a braid. A braid, off color mocks, force, and fluster storm. And this triggers and you draw preordain, <laughs> right? <laughs> if your deck is designed to get tinker going and you don't, I guess you got this in play on turn one, let's just say off a lotus petal so you don't have an artifact in play. And you want to get to Tinker, and you don't have a, and let's say you also have a land, by the way. So that's six cards. You have a fetch. The the decisions right there are all interactive, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to decide. Well, if I if I discard the one of the blue cards, then I'm not gonna. Then I need to hold the other one to keep Force of Will online. If I need this abrade in order to deal with my opponent's Shredder Ledger Shredder or creature or art of key artifact, then you know that I'm letting that go. So. You have to make critical decisions, and they impact how you interact with your opponent, what you can do, and and what you might be aiming towards. So if you discard the preordain, you've got nothing going except maybe a two three a two four creature, which is not nothing, but <laughs> right. And it, also, the preordain is even more important than that because the preordain is the way in which you can next trigger this. So you have to be thinking about <laughs> that as well. So there's so many considerations that con- converge in a single use, then the cumulative use means that every decision you make with Ledger Shredder could theoretically have an enormous impact on the ultimate outcome of the game. And there are a lot of aspects of what you just said that are front-loaded into how you sequence your spells because all of the decisions that you just described could can be speculative also in advance. If I draw the second another blue card for force if i draw pyroblast if i draw flusterstorm right all of that could be conditional in how and whether or not you play your second spell say in response to something so there's all mathematical probabilities but then you've also got so much unknown information that's part of the challenge of 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 magic is that it it, human beings the human brain cannot do the raw computational power that can be applied by the human intellect to a game like chess so, for example, just to be clear, if you're trying to calculate the probability of drawing, a, let's say, an off-color mox or a, a second spell that can be played on two mana on turn two, right? It, you ha- In order to do that probability calculation, you have to calculate, you have to know your deck, and then you have to do essentially fractional division based upon the spells that you've seen so far, played so far, that are in your graveyard versus those that are left in your library. Well, it's really hard in, when you have like 30 seconds to make a decision to calculate, okay, <laughs> I have 18 blue spells in my deck. I've seen five of them. That means I have this many left. So therefore, the probability of me drawing a blue spell off this card, if I play this second, let's say I play this preordain, leaving no second blue card in my hand, right? Mm-hmm. The probability is, you know, 15, 13 out of 18. That's hard to calculate on the spot, Very. right? 
It's just, <laughs> and then you, it's even harder because then preordain means that you get to see three cards, theoretically. <laughs> so yep, you have yep. to do the, the statistical calculation, the mathematical calculation. The human brain just can't do that. And so what we do instead is we play an enormous number of games so that we have intuitive play based on pattern recognition. And it's all intuitive play. And then the players, frankly, who are the best performing in their technical play, combine the pattern recognition with forward thinking. So they recognize here are the things that I have time and bandwidth to think through, and here are the things that I just need an enormous number of games under my belt in order to in order to inform my strategic thinking, my forward thinking. And most players are not going to be able to optimize that for a variety of reasons. Right. Experiential and cognitive. <laughs> right. And this, I think what I'm saying at the end of the day is I think this really rewards skill. In a good way. In an, an incredibly scaling and powerful way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think... I alluded to it earlier, but in addition to all of that that we've just said about the card's effect on deck building, its place in the the mana curve, its effect on decision making and rewarding skill, it also is just it fits well in the in the metagame. The metagame right now has a mixture of combo decks where this can be a turn one threat that enables you to fix your hand in subsequent turns yep. and maximize your interaction. The metagame is filled with creature decks, aggro shops, aggro bazaars where this thing can, in the right situation, grow quickly and interact positively with your opponent's creatures. A two-drop that can block a hollow one is incredibly yeah. valuable. Yes. <laughs> incredibly valuable. And in addition to all that, it's just, it helps you smooth over unexpected situations, right? You get into that mid-game where you've drawn four lands in a row, Ledger Shredder gets you through them faster, the way Top does sometimes, right? You get into that mid-game where you discover that it's going to be a grindy battle. It's going to be an attrition battle. Well, then maybe that's where you start discarding some of your cards that are otherwise two for ones, like Lotus Petals or Extraneous Force of Wills. Like you get this card enables you to switch gears mid game rapidly in a lot of situations. And we've cited that a number of times in the past as a feature that makes cards and decks powerful. Combo control decks and vintage. That's one of the things you've said, I think, a number of times in the past is if you can have a sort of deck that can switch roles on a dime in the mid game that affords you a lot of power and a lot of strong positioning within the metagame. And I think this card enables that at both a tactical and strategic level. I've watched Justin, for example, because Justin Gennari is, he's done a lot of experimentation with this card early. And I've watched him play a couple of games where there's a turn one shredder and it's just good value, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's defending against a Ragavan or a, De- a Deathrite Shaman or something like that tor- temporarily. Then it grows up to a 3-5 and you're thinking, oh, I'm chipping in for quality damage. And then there's a second letter- Ledger Shredder all of a sudden. And then a turn maybe, maybe two turns later, he's suddenly doing calculus on, oh, if my opponent plays a second spell, they're dead. <laughs> they, they legitimately can't play more than one spell per turn because yeah. the connive offering on double Shredder is two more damage next turn and they can't, they can't take that risk. That's an yeah. incredibly powerful tool. Threat. Yeah. Deterrent, yeah. Anyway, I really enjoyed this card. I hope we see it in a number of ways. Hasn't really shown up in the the Breach shell, at least not with top eights in the Breach shell that you're describing, but well, we, it, we can't be too far removed from that. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, I think obviously Sprite Dragon is immensely powerful because it's like super lethal. <laughs> Great. But, but I wonder if, like, let's say you were going to be playing three sprite dragons, let's say one in your main deck and two in your sideboard. I think I would be strongly incentivized to play one of these in one of those spots. Yeah, reasonable. It, I mean, at least to try it. And then over time, you would learn, you know, if the 
ability, the looting ability out, you know, weighs outweighs the speed. And I realized that, you know, it's not, it's a hybrid function in a sense. It's not ex- exclusive to one mode or the other, mm-hmm. right? Because in some games you might want to load up on the looting. In other games, it might just be an extant threat. It's worth noting too that while we're loosely referring to Sprite Dragon as a, a breach card, Sprite Dragon has put up very few numbers this year. It has fallen out of the favor in it, breach, and it hasn't put up a top eight what? at all in vintage this year. What? It was ubiquitous last year. I that's, agree. That's hard. T- to times are changing. Hard to fathom. Yeah. What's What's the uh, uh, threat du jour, a creature du jour in that deck then? Now, let me answer that in a couple of ways. One, Breach has been subsumed by Tinker in a number of ways recently, and the Tinker decks, especially the Grixis one, are typically Ragavan Hull Breacher style decks. But in the more dedicated Breach decks, they tend to be Dragon's Rage Channeler now, which ironically is, is there for some of the value that we're observing in Ledger Shredder in filling the graveyard. And I know, I mean, I said we haven't really seen Shredder performing in these Breach decks. That's not for lack of trying. It's just we haven't seen top eights with it yet. But people are playing it. People are playing Ledger Shredder along with Dragon's Rage Channeler. And so I think the Sprite Dragon has just been has just been usurped in favor of value that also feeds the engine as opposed to just a, a perpendicular axis. Okay. Well, I think the fact that Sprite Dragon saw so much play in recent history means that that approaches. I agree. I agree. We can't ignore it, even if it's not du jour. I mean, didn't I... I don't remember where I gave my moxie to for 2021, but I, it might have been. Maybe it, maybe the breach... Maybe I gave it in 2020 my breach, but it was <laughs> one of the top the top decks. Well, speaking of moxies, then I think we should shift gears toward predictions. Um, clearly, you and I both think this is playable. Evidence shows that it is playable. In the most recent challenge, in fact, it's funny that we're recording on this particular day, a little bit late for the start of the set, re- uh, you know, set's release. It just so happens that the most recent challenge was won by Senpai Blank playing Ledger Shredder in a Stoneblade shell. Straight blue-white Stoneblade with four Ledger Shredder, four Stoneforge Mystic. Wow. Now, okay. this is some clever deck building, and Senpai Black made a- another top eight with the same deck two weeks earlier, or three weeks earlier, two weeks. Um, same 75. There's some clever deck building here for a number of reasons. One is there's also instant speed hull breacher in this deck. And Stoneforge Mystic is the sort of threat that capitalizes on the same mana constraints as Ledger Shredder. So you've got fully eight creatures designed to come down with land and mox. Also, Stoneforge Mystic allows you the flexibility of leaving mana untapped on your opponent's turn to interact in such a way that you can perhaps interact with them playing two spells in a turn or promote your own play of two spells. So there's all manner of instants, as you could expect here, between flusters and plows in addition to the standard fare of restricted cards and free counters. So I think this is very good deck building on Senpai Blank's part, and it has clearly paid off. So we have at least two. The 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 lower bound on this estimate is two right now, and I think it would be foolish to stop there. The part of the challenge we have, and we haven't really talked about this too much, as we do for other cards, is does this card go in existing decks? Well, the answer is obvious. It goes into Breach at least. But Stoneblade is not a common performer in Vintage, right? That There's no standard yeah. Stoneblade list I, that you can I wouldn't to. have. I, it would not have been the top three guesses. <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally I agree. Would've... I would have guessed more of a Bant shell than Stoneblade off, off the cuff, and I would have definitely guessed Breach to start with. This could also be just a sideboard creature in a number of decks, well, right? 
So I think the fact that yeah, exactly. I think the fact that it's blue one means it can be slotted into essentially anything in vintage that isn't shop or bazaar. <laughs> I mean, right? That's it's ironic and true. Yes, it, I completely it agree. Can, it can go into a humans deck. It can go a five color humans deck. It can go into a growing a Xerox deck. It can go into a big blue deck. It can go into a Tinker deck. And you know, yes, it's competing with a lot of options. Yes, Hall Breacher is phenomenal. Yes, Ragavan is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But this has advantages over those. It's got evasion. It can grow quickly. Uh, I don't. I, I think I. I'm bullish. I'm gonna. I, I'm curious where you calibrate your or seek to fix your prediction. But if the floor is two, <laughs> I, I'm willing to go into double digits for this. I think that's totally reasonable. You want to go first, or you want to go second? Uh sure. I'll. I'll. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a. An availability heuristic to peg your <laughs> your prediction to. Um, I'm going to go 12. I, I, I would put the number at like 11.5. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, I don't have much of a, an argument for you for or against your 12. Um, because, as you observed, this goes in so many different decks, it's absolutely difficult to peg where it'll be used. We could see, I mean, in, there's a possible universe where we could see one or more of these every top eight just as various decks make the top eight, right? It could be in the sideboard of a Tinker deck. It could be in the main deck, as you said, of Breach. It just it goes a lot of places. That said, we haven't seen that phenomenon yet, so I'm going to lean on the the benefits that being late with this review give us, which is that that hasn't come to pass. We haven't seen these in every top eight. It does take some dedicated deck building to maximize, I think, and I think that's not going to change. It's And as such, I think... Your 12 is indicative of a less than one per top eight estimate, which is totally reasonable. Um, I'm That said, I'm going to take the under. And the reason is I think that I don't think this is a, a new Ragavan. I don't think this goes and becomes a staple in any archetype necessarily. I think the community is still learning about it, of course. But yeah, well, there it is. I think it's I think it's a little more akin to a Sprite Dragon than a Ragavan. Let's put it that way. And could become a staple in one archetype, but that archetype has not shown itself just yet. So I'm going to go, I'm going to take the under and go with 10. And I'll be prepared to eat my words. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next card is another one similar to Ledger Shredder in that we have some preliminary results. We're talking about Unlicensed Hearse, which is a great name when you think about oh, it. Oh, it's great. <laughs> yeah. This is two for an artifact vehicle. It says tap, exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard. Unlicensed Hurst's power and toughness are equal to the number of cards exiled with it. And it has crew two. I, I just want to point out that the very first... Okay, let me back up. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'll make a simpler statement, but the second anti-graveyard anti card, really anti-graveyard tactic in Magic is Night Soil. Now... You could say Eater of the Dead or something like that, but, but, but I mean, so the, I, I was gonna I was gonna say it's the first. The reason I was I was gonna use the sentence first recurring or iterative version of that was Night Soil. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is reminds me of that in being reusable. Um, I think I think the ability. Okay, there's a lot to say here. <laughs> Is there anything there is. you want to say first before I, I dive into my... No, I love this Night Soil comparison you're making. I, honestly, it's I would never have thought of that myself, but I think it's incredibly apt. Please when keep you, going. When you play old school, you have to look for all of those tactics. There aren't many right. there. Um, so just just for reference, so people don't, 
may not don't have to look this up. Night, Night Soil is a is an enchantment from Fallen Empires, where it's a green enchantment where you exile up to two cards from a graveyard and you generate uh, tokens. So you're lit- sort of like feeding off your opponent's graveyard. It does require two creatures. Yeah, up to two. It requires two creatures. So yeah. basically, it's designed to prevent re- recurring, you know, Nether Shadow and that sort of nonsense. And then in the Reanimator decks of the time, you know, the were pretty rudimentary, mostly like Trike, Triskelion, maybe Polar Kraken, and then eventually, um, oh. obviously Tetravis, and then ultimately Ashen Ghoul. Okay. Um, but this is so over the course of the evolution of of vintage to, of Type One to Vintage, as Reanimator decks have grown in power and prevalence, the card pool has been heavily mined for anything that is even plausibly usable to disrupt the graveyard. I mean, I have very powerful memories of Brian DeMars using Frexian Furnace in some of the old mean deck opens at the soldiery, Kevin. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, every every card that's plausibly anti-graveyard has been tried just about at one point or another. And there's a long list of them. From Coffin Purge was used against Rector. You might remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Extirpate, um, you know, we we're in a place where there are very powerful anti anti graveyard cards. I think what the five or six most powerful in contemporary vintage are in no particular order. I think we can agree. Leyline of the Void, um, uh, the Soul Artifact. What's that card called? The full card. Soul Guide Lantern. Soul Guide Lantern. Um, Grafdigger's Cage. Grafdigger's Cage is is a, yeah definitely up there in terms of bottling things up. I think Tormod's Crypt is probably still in the top six. Um, what after, else? After that, I'd have to look at stats because there's a number of contenders, but you've still yes. got um, uh, Nile Spellbomb. You've still got um, Ravenous Trap. You've yeah, still Ravenous got Trap, I think, is in the top six. Endurance. Spellbomb is in that. Endurance might, I think, might be in like the tier 1.5. Yeah. I would put, put Nihil Spellbomb and Relic of Progenesis in like the tier 2 yeah. these days because it's so far behind the Soul Guide Lantern. The ones fetchable by Saga are overrepresented at the moment for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. And, and and then there's Bajuka Bog in that second tier, maybe third tier. <laughs> um, surgical Extraction. Yes, Bajuka Bog, I think, saw... Yeah, Surgical Extraction is really interesting. Bajuka Bog saw an uptick because of the um, the workshop creature that allows you to, to fetch lands. God, uh, Golos. So bad. Golos, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so bad with names at the moment. <laughs> um, but one card that, that was saw interesting at an interesting moment that emerged in a period where dredge was acquiring its strength but it wasn't at the at the level of strength that we see today and that card is jotun grunt <laughs> nice and jotun grunt was interesting because it was it was at a moment where white was was not quite at the at its nadir it's was a perigee <laughs> that it had reached, had fallen to in the years before Fragmentize and Monastery Mentor had had been printed, right? Like there was maybe a five-year period up to Fragmentize and Monastery Mentor and Containment Priest where white was just by far the worst color in magic. It was, it was I think, like in that mid-aughts where Jotungrunt, where white was still a very plausibly viable... People, people I mean, there was a... Remember when... Paul Mastriano won the first NYSE with, with blue-white control, Esper control, right? Like, white was very plausibly. Um, and Jotun Grunt, I think, in the mid-aughts, 
it was it was that moment where where dredge was on the upswing and future site may have been printed but the the really bonk future site may or may not have been printed at that point i think i think yoten grunt came out maybe two years before future site maybe a year and a half but it even when Future Sight came out, you didn't quite get the full Bananas dredge deck. I mean, Future Sight gave Bridge from Below and Narco Amoeba, which were hugely important. But it really wasn't until, what, Dread Return, and there were a few other printings that kind of put dredge, you know, really on the upswing. Mm-hmm. So I think Future Sight was like the next big step after uh dredge. The dredge mechanic was, was printed with uh, Ravnica, the original Ravnica. 2006, the fall of 2006, if I'm not mistaken. And Future Sight came out in, was it 20, 2007, 2008? Was it the spring of 2008 or the fall of, fall of 20, 2008 was, no, fall of 2007 was um, Lorowin. Or no, Lorowin might have been 2008. I'm getting a little bit, it's in that era. <laughs> it's in that era. Yeah. And Yoten Grunt, this, this is what I'm trying to get at. Yoten Grunt was a card where in the upkeep, it was, Dredge was just slow enough that a fast enough Jotun Grunt could actually push back Dredge considerably, right? Like in the Frigorid mold is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Like Jotun Grunt was actually disruptive. I think once Future Sight came out and once then Dredge, especially when Dredge Return was printed, Dredge acquired such speed that Jotun Grunt was no longer disruptive. But it wasn't just that Jotun Grunt was disruptive, Kevin. It was disruptive, but it was also generally useful because other decks used Yawgmoth's will, right? And so you could just drain that Yawgmoth's will a little bit of its vitality, a little bit of its oomph. Mm-hmm. And it was a 4-4 creature that could be fed because all these decks, whether they were Thirst decks or Gifts decks, were using their graveyard, right? So like a turn 2 Jotun Grunt was a real threat, especially when backed up with other things, um, you know, other uh, hate bears. So... I remember Jotun Grunt being an interesting example of how to utilize, um, you know, how to sort of pick apart your opponent's graveyard. But here's the difference. The fundamental flaw in Jotun Grunt over time is the limitation and when it can be used for this disruptive ability. Mm-hmm. It's an upkeep ability. And therefore, it might even, is it cumulative upkeep? It might even be cumulative upkeep. It's cumulative, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Which means that it's sort of, created this interesting dynamic where the dredge player had to decide, do I go, do I try and overwhelm it? In which case I'm actually feeding the Jotun Grunt, or do I try and slow down for a moment to force my opponent to lose it? It was an interesting dynamic. I don't know if you were playing in that in that time, Kevin, that that brief moment. But I, I was not, but I remember it. But the reason I bring that up is not to sort of do a historiography of anti-graveyard cards, but to emphasize the incredible power of being able to pick your spot when it comes to disrupting graveyards. It's an overwhelmingly important graveyard disruption in contemporary mm-hmm. vintage. In fact, I would say over the last 15 years of vintage. And that, and so the cards where you can't pick your spot are so much worse than those where you can against dredge because of the timing of the dredge opponent where they can at any moment decide when to dredge. Okay, I'm going to dredge on your end step or in your draw step or in my upkeep or in my draw step and the ability to respond to certain triggers, right? Especially like trigger on the stack with Icarid. Now I'm going to respond because that's often when the dredge player will want to dredge, right? With the trigger, with the Icarid trigger on the stack and Jotun Grunt just provide no suppleness, no <laughs> flexibility when it came to that. 
And I think this does in a really important way, right? That's that's the critical point here, is that you get to pick your spot. And the tap doesn't really matter, has no effect because you can still, do you need to, do you need, when you crew this, does it need to be untapped or does it not matter? Not to crew it. You can yeah. crew it and block, for example, exactly. and still activate its tap ability, which That's does double know. duty in some matchups. But to attack, you need to be, you can't be yeah. tapped. You're giving up on the activation. So I think the flexibility of being able to pick your spot is incredibly important. Hopefully I drove that home. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that this, in a sense, grows over time means that you can bottle up your opponent in the early game. And it, and by the way, this isn't useful just against Dredge. It's against any of the Bizarre decks. <laughs> Hell, Breach decks, yeah. um, other recursion decks. Most of the metagame uses its graveyard as a resource. In some manner, shape, or form, yes. You know, like you could, your opponent plays Snapcaster Mage or uses Jace Friend's Prodigy. Okay, I'll pick my spot. Here you go. They're yep. gone. <laughs> Quite important. All this, right, I've said my piece. You, you said a mouthful, and, and I, I could agree more. The There's a lot of things I want to add. The intersection of usability and playability in Vintage for Graveyard Hate falls along the extremes of a number of axes. Yes. One is cost. Efficiency. So, there's a number of them. Cost, efficiency, but so for cost, you get uh, your, your Ley Lines and your Ravenous Traps and your Endurance, right? Things that are free. Tormod's Crypt. There's, um, there's replacement, self-replacement. Cards that can draw the, you know, draw you a card when they're used, like your Nile Spell Bombs and your Soul Guide Lanterns. There's comprehensiveness, which is where Ley Line comes in big. There's um, incidental value, which is where your Saga targets come in, right? I play this land on turn one and I pull up this Soul Guide Lantern two turns later. This card doesn't hit on all of those, of course, but in the workshop realm, it hits on many of them. It, it, it has its toe in almost all of those waters, meaning, is it free? No, but almost every reasonable starting hand for shops can play this on turn one, right? It's, it functions like a one drop in yes. shops. It's, is it comprehensive? Yeah. Meaning, does it hit their whole graveyard? No. But at two per, it's doing a really good impression of being comprehensive, right? Yes, Bazaar can outrace it because Bazaar can dump more than two cards per turn. But that's it. But Bazaar is still choosy when it comes to dredge. You know, the opening hands typically have one or two dredgers in them. Or your Hogak decks, you know, they're trying to hit exactly a Squee and exactly a Master or exactly a Vine. This card being targeted does a really good job of being comprehensive in that regard. Uh, and likewise, yes, uh, Underworld Breach is a material, you know, it's a critical mass function, but it still requires specific cards, right? You you hit that specific card and the combo is is really diminished. And then there's versatility. This card is, in the end, still a vehicle. If you need it to be its activating ability every turn and it's doing the comprehensive job, then it just does it. If you don't, then you can switch gears, pun intended, on turn two, three, four, and you've got a 4-4 four, four or a 6-6 six, six attacker right? Which is a really good upgrade to a smaller creature like uh, a Foundry Inspector or a, a Patchwork Automaton that was played in the early game, right? And so this card, I think, is a great intersection of all the ways and means in which we want our Graveyard Hate to exist in Vintage. And I think that's a really fascinating design in that regard. It's never dead, you know, yeah. it, it becomes a creature. I it, it's, it's cheap, it's effective, it's comprehensive, it lets you it's oh and it's also not sacrificed on use like so many of the things we use so it's it's persistent uh it's just great yeah it really is it it's situationally better and situationally worse than a, a available options 
but the floor is, the, is real high. The floor is real high. Floor, That's, I'm not sure I agree with that, actually. I think the, the, the floor is higher than Tormod's Crypt. Uh, the floor is floor higher is than Grafdigger's Cage, even. Tormod's Crypt. Yeah, because the worst so case the scenario is this is a the minimal number of uses, right? Yeah. Well, the the I don't floor think is true. like... I I mean, the, what's the floor the, on this? You're attacking with a 5-5 five, five or a 6-6 six, six vehicle a couple of no, turns later? okay. I I think by floor, I mean number of uses. I think here's the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that the empirical evidence on the most, let's call it the top tier anti-artifact, car, uh, sorry, anti-graveyard spells in vintage is that they cost either zero to, between zero to one mana. True. Yep. Um, and there is no evidence of a currently you heavily used anti whose card is primarily as an anti graveyard tactic. They cost two or more that is widespreadly that is used in widespread. So I think like this is one of the things that we have learned is that as much as we think we've we've been doing sets for well over a dec set reviews for well over a decade now, <laughs> and there have been many many cases where we say okay finally Tormod's crypt is going to be bed <laughs> right it, like how many times have we made a comparison to Tormod's crypt and, and the list is much longer than the hill spellbomb relic of progenitus and Grafdigger's cage mm-hmm. it's just much so, much longer let me finish the thought the point is yeah. that we have constantly been saying okay this card yes it costs the mana but it's by far superior i mean there's just so many instances where a deck can go turn one preordain find graft uh, Tormod's crypt and wants to play it right that they cannot do that with anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think the evidence is that the overwhelming empirical evidence, in my, and I have not done a systematic review of this, but this is based upon my relative expertise, expert knowledge, having studied this data for, well, for decades, is that mana cost, of either direct or alternative mana cost, is the overwhelming criterion. It's by far the most. Now, that doesn't mean that the, those other things you mentioned aren't also important. I think sweep, reusability, upside, all of, you know, all of those things matter. I totally agree with you. But they are all strictly secondary to mana cost. And, and just well. one more point on that. I think where the floor on this card is higher than Tormod's Crypt or any of the aforementioned Tier 1 anti-graveyard cards is that if we are restricting, is that... Once you survey applications of this card outside of workshops, then that distinction becomes far more salient because you don't have Mishra's workshop and City of uh, uh, Ancient Tomb rather to consistently, you know, reliably power this out on turn one. That's the yeah. difference. Yeah, that was going to be my first response. Was that I think your points are have dramatically different observational evidence when divided for or against workshops i completely agree everything you said suggests and i think the evidence shows us that this card is not applicable in non-shop decks well that automatically means the floor is higher for well this. um so when i was saying floor, i was referring to in game when you're playing this card i was referring Fair. to the floor being higher i i genuinely believe that the floor is higher on this card than a tormod's crypt in in the context of you've chosen to put both of them in your deck <laughs> right um so, the, but for the purposes of our predictions, you're totally right. This card probably won't see play outside of shops, or maybe some extreme or six, Eldrazi seven, or something. Yeah, like that. seven Moxen still ancient tomb decks. Yeah. That said, the flip side of that is this: <laughs> this card was took second place 
in the most recent challenge. Yeah. And it's noteworthy that it did so in an Urza Saga deck. And inside of that deck, even though it was a Saga deck, this was the only anti-graveyard effect in the main deck. Well, that raises another very important point, which is that in the history of Vintage, there has been a push and pull between what goes into the main deck and what goes into the sideboard. Mm -hmm. And Brian Weissman, I think, was really the first to disrupt the general presumption that specialized cards do not go in the main deck by putting two red elemental blasts into the main deck of his control deck, which, by the way, is still a very unusual thing to do in old school. If you <laughs> Which peruse, is wild. Yeah, if you peruse old school metagames, it's very unusual to see versions of the deck that have two copies of, or any control deck that has two copies of Red Elemental Blast. It, most usually see one, and more frequently you see zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that default presumption runs deep. Now, in contemporary vintage, it, at least in the last two years, it's not unusual to see decks that have two to three Pyroblast main deck. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's extraordinarily unusual to see decks running multiple, I don't know, anti-graveyard cards main deck. Right? Um, I mean... I well, mean, you, I mean, that's, that sounds like a little be, bit of an overstatement. The, all the Luris decks typically have main deck Soul Guide Lantern, and most of the Saga decks do. Yeah, I... I mean in the in the era of like the last 10 years. Oh, sure. It's like in the main, like fewer sure. than 1% of, of top eight decks. That's to me is it run a, a, de- a, a card whose primary usage and <laughs> tactical purpose is to, is to address graveyard-based strategy. I, I think what you've said is true, but not compelling in any way. We're not, de- we're not playing the last 10 years of Magic yeah. right now. We're playing today. But, and today, main deck artifact-based graveyard hate is normal across many archetypes, typically enabled by Saga, and Soul Guide Lantern is the is the poster child for it. Yes, right? because it can be cycled. <laughs> because it can be cycled and because it has an immediate and later effect. I mean, there's no denying any of those things in the current metagame. Is it, is it every deck? No, absolutely not, but it's still common. The observation I'm making and the reason I specifically called out the main deck and the Urza Saga part is that this shop deck with four main deck sagas is heavily incentivized to be playing a main deck soul guide lantern yes and yet more than once in fact as i'm observing in the last couple of weeks unlicensed hearse gets the nod main deck instead that is a powerful endorsement of this card well that that's kind of what i was actually leading to i was trying to make a general point okay the general point and then the the general premise and then the minor premise the general premise is that in vintage um it is common i wouldn't say frequent but it's common that players run red elemental blast type effects that is to say specialized specialized counter magic to deal with blue decks flusterstorm pyroblast etc but it is uncommon at least in in the main to see specialized answers to graveyards and and frankly artifacts and enchantments um it's becoming more common with things like force of vigor and fragmentize i mean you'll see like I'd say in the last five years, you know, we've seen like one fragmentize in a Jeskai deck main deck, okay, on average. Yeah. Like it's basically the number of fragmentize in like the 2019 Jeskai deck was like 0.5 main deck, yeah. right? It was like about half ran one, a half didn't. And then 
as you got to a braid, people started running more. But it's still even in the main. Even with shops being a, a relatively decent portion of the metagame, it was an open question whether people would even run, a, you know, something. And once, what a, a dedicated anti-artifact spell. And what happened was, as you get printing, where the card can be used, you know, like a braid, as to burn a creature or destroy an artifact, then suddenly disenchants become main deckable. Right, and then you get even further with the card we reviewed in the last set, the new Bazeju, right, where it becomes even more main deckable. And I think Soul Guide Lantern was in this, in a sense a paradigm shift, because it meant that you could reasonably run those cards main deck, because you could get it wasn't just a total loss if you weren't playing <laughs> a, a dredge deck or whatever. And by way of callback, that's why Brian DeMars ran Phyrexian Furnace the way he did. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's why so many champs yeah, in the mid, in the aughts and the early teens uh, had Nile spell bombs in them. Yes, exactly. It, yeah. it, like the control decks had the spell bomb. Yeah. Like the, the uh, Mark Lenicra type decks. Exactly. And I think what I'm trying to say here is that, and there's always usually been a trade off between those effects, right? Like the better a card is at its primary function of being an anti graveyard card, usually the worse it is at, at being a main deck card. <laughs> right <laughs> accurate and, and so this i think brilliantly straddles that that hybridity function it's it sort of gets really close to it's essentially a very powerful main deck card that also is very powerful at dealing with with graveyards <laughs> that is kind of remarkable it's you know, we, very close to that go ahead and i'm reminded the way you phrased that just jogged my memory i um I said a long time ago when we were lamenting the power of Delve, I said that we don't have enough cards that are just purely fueled by how much your opponent is is delving or, or putting cards into their graveyard. This is a card, a Deathrite Shaman is probably the best example of that, but this is a card that's really starting to toe that line, is even if your opponent's not a graveyard deck, let's say they're Grixis Tinker, for example, this card is still just fueled by how much they put in their graveyard. As they fetch and they loot and they connive and they dac faden and etc. This card just eats that and grows. And so it's it's another hidden growing creature, in addition to all the other things we've said, that, as you've said, is just great in the main deck. Like the the format is that has enough celerity that two, even two non-graveyard based decks, which shops typically is, uh Tinker typically is, there's enough fuel to support this thing growing by two for the first few turns of the game being moderately disruptive and then just exploding on someone as a four, four, a six, six and eight, eight in the mid game. And oh, by the way, the crew stays at two, right? A safer version of this card would have had crew equal number of counters on it, which would have been <laughs> pretty boring. Now that I think about it, I'm glad they didn't do that. Crew two means that just any old mid game Phyrexian revoker off the top of your deck, just as virtual haste to the tune of being a six power creature or whatever. It's kind of like, kind of like um, Fleet Wheel Cruiser in that respect. Not the same function, mind. Fleet Wheel Cruiser was there for its haste and its deck-killing ability, which has become diminished in, in its need over time. But it's kind of like that, giving virtual haste to whatever creature comes off the top. I The evidence we have so far clearly says that this, deck, or this card is playable because it has already three top eights in Workshop Aggro. Ironically, in the most recent challenge, it was it was lost in the finals to the Ledger Shredder deck, which is funny. That finals featured pairing of two new Capenna cards. 
And there have been already a handful of appearances in main decks, as we described. These four Saga-based workshop aggro decks with patchwork automatons and stone coil serpents these days, four nettle cysts, and one or two unlicensed hearths. As you observed, I think implicitly, this is not the only anti-graveyard card. These decks still have Grafdigger's Cage, Needles, Relics, and um, and other things, Stone uh, Soul Guide Lanterns in, in the sideboard. So it's not playing a solo act, but we never expected that. We would never have suggested such a thing. This is just part of a suite of effects, and it turns out it's the one that has, the, as I was trying to say earlier, the highest floor in the main. So just to be clear, though, that doesn't mean the two mana spells, Kevin, that are primarily used against Dredge or as an anti-artifact tactic have not seen play. In fact, there's a lot that have seen quite a bit of play. Right. Um, Containment Priest, Rest in Peace, Yixla Jailer. I think those are the three biggies. I'm going to give you, a, a, in addition to Jotengrad, I'm going to give you another in a moment that's actually closer to this <laughs> that I'm sure you've forgotten about. Um, Probably. But um, of those three I just mentioned, which of, which of those three do you think has seen the most play, by the way? Um, uh, well, uh, the most play? Gosh, that's tricky. Cumulative uh, play, historically. Cumulative play, yeah. I mean, looking past it the last decade, I would posit that, oh, it's got to be a close tie between Jailer and Priest, right? Because so many of those mentor decks played yes. um, priest, yes. and it was so good. I but, think it's but Jailer was really big in, in Grixis for a while. It's true. I think the answer is priest, and I think the reason again it goes to my point about picking. Your, oh right? yeah. Now here's the card that actually saw a little bit of play. Mostly Brian and Mars was pushing it. That's most similar to this scavenging ooze. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because it it grew this growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you. The difference is it's a two mana. The difference is that you had to put green into it, which right. means that it was just generally too slow for dread to, to overcome dredge. Even if you had like, you know, turn one, um, it, just, it was just too slow. Even if you had like yeah. a, you know. Yeah, it was a popular inclusion in various Green Sun Zenith decks yep. over the years. Yeah. yeah, you're right. That's a great comparison. And the fact that this doesn't, doesn't require the subsequent mana investment is a clear mark in the favor of the hearse. Which I think was kind of implied by all of our prior comparisons, but we didn't explicitly state it. Yep. So it's already proven itself to the tune of three top eights at the time of recording. I think that it appears that, at least in the current crop of Workshop aggro decks, that this is already a staple. Main deck maybe comes and goes. We'll see. But as Workshops goes, I expect to see this card now. Full on. Just like Patrick Automaton, I expect to see this card. And that's a pretty powerful endorsement, right? This could end up being, at the time of set review, or sorry, report card, this could end up being the most played card from New Capenna. Uh, yeah, I think that probably is. Yeah. As such, I'm going to go higher than our Ledger Shredder numbers. Um, it's it's capped, obviously, for the observations we made about how it's really only a workshop card. Is it castable in a 5 mox deck? Yeah, technically, but you've got a lot of options in those blue-based 5 mox decks, so I don't think this is going to make the cut. Um, I'm going to go with a relatively healthy 16 and I might be underselling it there. I think I am surprised. I'm, I thought this would be like a, if it's already got four appearances and it might be on the upswing. Uh, you- well, that's why I was going with four per month as my, kind of my target, a little, maybe four or five per month. That puts me to in the 15 range. That's how, that's how I got to that. Could it become more popular with an upswing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll take the over. <laughs> I mean, we're talking... The problem is it has to do with... Here's the fundamental function. Is how many of the ancient tomb decks are there? Right. How are ancient tomb decks doing in vintage right 
the short answer is outside of workshops, which I think is what you're referring to, not well. Yes. There's there's not a lot of Eldrazi-focused or, say, mono-white hate bears. There's not a lot of Thalia in Vintage right now. Well, in that case, I think I'll take the under. Um, I'll, go, uh, I'll go 13. Not very exciting, but that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we move on from this, what do you think about its playability in something like 8-cast, which is not... Uh, a dominant part of the metagame by any stretch, but is sometimes, I don't know if it's always, but frequently an ancient tomb deck and a mox opal deck. It seems I like, don't have, yeah. It seems like that deck is still incentivized to have the cheapest artifact based graveyard hate that it can just to enable thought monitors. <laughs> and even this at two is still probably more than they're willing to stomach. Sounds right. Okay. All right. Well, we've hit the fireworks early for this set, but we're not quite done yet. Let's talk about professional face breaker. 2R, it's a creature, human warrior, with menace. Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat to a player, create a treasure token. Sacrifice a treasure token, colon, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. And it's a 2-3. Now, treasures are all over this set, and indeed all over magic of late. This is a unique card, though, in that it is a treasure payoff that they don't make too many of. Translate a treasure, every treasure, with no mana investment other than, I guess, the opportunity cost of the treasure itself, into the top card of your deck, and you can play it this turn. Now, this is an engine card, <laughs> the likes of which we like to talk about, right? We talk about these kind of cards all the time. Your Burgies, your Stormkiln Artists, etc., etc. There's one every other set, it seems, mostly in red. And I'm not a strong proponent of this card, but it's yet another way to translate one resource directly into another without the intervening mana. And inevitably... Our conclusion for these cards is that they're just never quite there. They're just never quite worth it. But similar to Stormkiln Artist, this card provides you incremental value in an alternate way. It's not just an engine. It also just pumps out treasure as you attack each turn. And so it's very reasonable in my eyes to say you could play Ragavan on one, just straight up Volcanic Island Ragavan go. Turn two, you could hit with Ragavan, get your treasure, play a second land, cast Professional Facebreaker. Now, you've used your treasure in that scenario, but if you have any other accelerant to keep your treasure around, you can immediately cash that treasure in for a card with this on turn two. And, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm mistaken. If you have another accelerant, you play this pre-combat, you go landmarks this pre-combat, and then when you hit with Ragavan, you get two treasures, one from Ragavan, one from this. And now you've got two cards worth of activating this. It doesn't take much to generate a lot of material with this card is what I'm getting at. And it's not overcommitted to being a combo deck necessarily. Those are characteristics I like about it, especially in light of our past reviews. What do you think? Well, I think it's really hard to consistently pair up like the Ragavan treasures and the other things that generate treasures with this. But if you can, it's overwhelmingly powerful. That's right? a good point. Yeah. I There's some synergy between this and Ragavan, just at face value, right? Ragavan has dash. Ragavan's cheaper than this. I mean, that's why I went to that card as an example. There's not a lot of go-to treasure creators in Vintage other than this. Like, Hullbreacher is the next most played one, I, and it doesn't have a lot of synergy. With well, it's funny you men mentioned Hullbreacher. I think that's one of the upsides to this card, is that if your opponent is sitting there with a Hullbreacher and you can't play your draw spells, that's where this comes in handy. It has Menace, so oh, it can't be funny. blocked. It's good against Hullbreacher, you're exactly. saying. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's absolutely true. You're right. It's non-draw-based card advantages. It has value. It's not an engine in and of itself. It's, this card by itself is only ever going to give you one treasure per turn. Okay, it's technically possible to get more if you've got double strike, but that's not happening in this format. So it's not going to self-propagate. 
It's not like Bergy, where if you play a card that draws a card, you just get the mana right back. You have to you have to build this as an engine with something else if you want to really go off, so to speak. And in that sense, I, the floor is pretty low. And the body, a 2-3 three for 3, even with Menace, is way below the standard for Vintage. It, you know, it's just unacceptably small by Vintage standards. I could make a lot of speculative um, places for this this card in various decks, but when it comes to three mana, there's no way it's going to usurp Hullbreacher, for example, in the modern metagame as a treasure maker and as not a disruptive a effect. I mean, oh that's my God. not disruptive I have some at all. Funny, funny effects. I mean, the draw seven with Hullbreachers are hilarious because <laughs> you generate so many tokens. Granted, granted. Yeah. And that's living the dream, of course. Yeah. So in my eyes... This I, I put this card on the list because it enables a particular type of translation of resources that we haven't seen before. Treasure directly into card. We've seen it implicitly through the combinations of some effects, but not directly. But because it doesn't self-propagate, meaning it's not going to give you more than one treasure a turn itself, it requires that combination. And outside of Ragavan, which can give you another one per turn, it's just inherently capped. There's no recursive treasure maker that we're really employing in vintage and that this suddenly makes playable i don't think this card bears a whole lot more analysis than that i think it's clearly a zero i agree next up we have yet another in a long line of one mana counter spells an offer you can't refuse costs you it's an instant counter target non-creature spell its controller creates two treasure tokens non-creature comprehensive counter unconditional but you're giving them two mana now or later a one-mana non-creature counter has wide applicability across Vintage. Even those decks that are heaviest on creatures, Hogak, Workshop Aggro, those decks are still rife with non-creature spells. Hogak has its various counter spells and Force of Vigor, Hollowvine even more so, Dredge even more so. Um, and Workshop Aggro obviously has all its various lock components. So... Even in the quote-unquote worst matchups, I think this card has a main deckable kind of effect in Vintage. That much is clear. Can we talk about this drawback? Which is, I don't want to call it unique. There's never been anything that did exactly this, but we've obviously, in, we're in the business of giving our opponents resources in the past. One close comparison might be Swan Song, which has a narrower targeting uh, offer than this, but also gives your opponent a 2-2 flyer. Obviously, if this card didn't have this drawback, it would probably be immediately played in a zillion vintage decks, which tells me that this drawback, that's not the only way, but it tells me that this drawback is really significant and probably unacceptably so. How do you assess giving your opponent two treasures? Badly. Um, <laughs> um, Very unfavorable. Yeah. I think you have to be able to do something. You have to capitalize on this quickly. To justify that, right? Agree. And and given the fact that we can play so many free counter spells, I, I just I just don't see. I mean, if this had been printed twenty years ago, we'd be having a very different conversation. Yeah, I think you're right. I didn't allude to it, but I think the opportunity cost of just paying mana for a counter spell to begin with is needs to be addressed because there aren't actually too many counter spells that we pay mana for anymore. Exactly. That's You've got your Fluster Storms, which are, you know, is is really comprehensive in its ability to counter, meaning it's very it's very hard to counteract a Fluster Storm. And you've got your Pyro and Reb, which obviously serve double duty as removal. After that, it is usually typical it typically free counter spells in vintage these days. So 
there's one other thing I want to ask you before we move on from this card, and that is, what about its use and application on your own spells? I I mean, is treasure good enough to do that? Yeah, what if this said, counter a spell you control, create two treasure? Can you put I mean, that in a combo deck? To generate two mana? like in yeah. A, in a, yeah. You play a mox, and you counter it, and you get two treasures. You just traded two mana for two mana, and two cards for two mana. So I'm, I'm not saying the, the, the translation is good. Um, I just wanted to address that as it's a possibility is what I would say. And it could be a form of fixing and it can be a form of storming that also doubles as a counter when you need it. I don't think there's a deck in Vintage that wants that. You could do it in Breach, I suppose, to fix mana if you had a weird mana configuration where you needed alternate colors, but you only had UU or something like that. Or a single mana. So if you've cast Underworld Breach and you've only got blue floating, you could play a Mox out of your graveyard, an off-color Mox. You play an Emerald out of your graveyard and counter it with this and turn your one blue into two for something else. I don't know what. That seems like just an incredibly narrow corner case and you're still putting an effectively bad card in your deck. Yeah. I think it's fun to explore that concept, but I really don't think it's going anywhere. I'm going to go with zero. Are you zero as well? Yes. Next up, we have another proven card, if only a little bit, and that is Tainted in- tainted Indulgence. You be instant. Draw two cards. Then... Discard a card unless there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. So just to be clear on what that means, it it means not different mana values, but just that you, like, if your graveyard has, I mean, give me an example graveyard that would meet this condition. Zero, one, two, three, four. Mana values, the new phrase for converted mana costs, which we were given I a couple see. of sets okay. back. And so it is looking for differentiated converted mana costs. So if you have a Force of Will in your graveyard, you're good. Uh, no, no. You'd have to have a Force of Will and four other cards. Uh, yeah. You'd have to have a Land, a Preordain, a Force of Will, a Time Walk, and then a three or a four, <laughs> a Hull Breacher. Okay. Like, you'd have to have that kind of configuration. Obviously, this card is structured such that it is incredibly difficult to satisfy that condition in the early turns of the game. Yep. Vintage is the format that can do it the most, I think, reliably, especially given Moxon and zero other zero-casting cost artifacts and Fetchlands, but... It's still, I mean, in the in, in, even in a deck designed to reach this goal, it's still probably difficult to pull off before turn three, I would argue. And even then, not reliable. Like, yes, you've got fetch lands, so zeros are easy to achieve, plus your lotus petals and your, and your lotuses. And yes, you've got free counter magic, so five is fairly easy to achieve in your force of wills. And yes, you can pepper in extra free counter magic in the form of, say, days, uh, mind break trap, couple of other choices and you can pepper in cantrips so your 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 ponder preordains so you've got zero one five covered i think that's the part that's probably easy to get by turn two even sometimes um filling in three four and beyond much harder to do we just don't have staples that are easy to cast or have alternate costs in those colors you can go the looting route so you can be your 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 thought scour Jace Vrince Prodigy Dak Faden type list to just sidestep that. But even then, you're talking about a deck that has a reliable density of 2 3 4 in it, which, okay, 2 is not that hard if you're a Tainted Indulgence deck already. But having a density of 3 and 4 such that you get um, two of them into your graveyard with, reli- with consistency, uh, that's tough. To me, that's asking a lot. I think it's pretty easy to get to 3. It's a little bit of a stretch to get to 4, and 5 is work. 5 is a lot of work. 
That said, the fail case for this is just instant speed, draw two, discard one. It's not a bad effect, and we've sung the praises of looting in general in the whole Ledger Strider section a lot this episode. It has a two designated mana cost, though, which for reasons we've discussed, makes it kind of two and a half mana, depending on how you structure your deck. Doesn't play well with off-color Moxin, and so if you're going to reliably play this, it's going to be in something like pure blue-black, like Doomsday, which happens to be the, the one place it has appeared. Discover N won the Vintage Challenge this past weekend, one of the Vintage Challenges this past weekend, with, this, with Doomsday featuring one copy of Tainted Indulgence. And you can see why it would be attractive in Doomsday in particular, right? The mana is conducive. The effect is the sort of effect that Doomsday likes. And Doomsday is the sort of deck that can exercise a, a modicum of control over the contents of its discard pile, <laughs> right? Not a lot, but some. I don't actually believe that this card is a long-term like staple in Doomsday. My guess is Discover N was experimenting and may have learned quite a bit through That's this tournament, but my not assumption. too much with a one of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he I, I've noticed that he and others often like to experiment with the one slot with one slot and oh, rotate yeah. it. And I understand that. Yeah. And so it you're chalking up a lot of the victory with this card to the deck selection and the pilot here, obviously. Yes. yes. There's as far as I can tell, there's nothing else no, there's nothing else I see in this list that is I would call experimental. So it's possible that he won this tournament without casting this card more than once or twice. It could be part of a doomsday pile, mind you, right? There's value in simply drawing two cards exactly in a doomsday pile. You've seen it, but we've seen it time and time again, I think. And if your life total is low and say street race aren't an option and you want a flexible pile that can stand up to disruption, then there's something to be said for putting this, you know, halfway down your pile such that if your Ancestral doesn't resolve or your Gush doesn't pay off, you can still go again. That's a really narrow use case, right? As a, as a conditional card in an occasional doomsday, doomsday pile, and every once in a while you're going to straight up draw two with this in Doomsday because what, what in the world mana costs could you have in your graveyard in Doomsday? Zero, one, and five are covered. That's not hard. Then you've got, well, Doomsday itself can be your three. If it got countered, if it, aka it didn't resolve because otherwise it cleared your graveyard uh, force of negation is a good three. Yep. There's four of them. Beyond that, you're looking at just Necro, Doomsday, and Dig Through Time. Like, those few cards are where you can get your fifth mana cost. That's a very powerful analysis. <laughs> Post sideboard, you get some mind break traps. I mean, it's real hard to put together five different mana costs without going through a lot of hoops, even in Vintage. I suppose some kind of deck that's good at dumping its graveyard can do it, right? Like, well, Dredge, for example, right? Dredge can achieve this goal without too much difficulty. But no deck that plays Bizarre is in the business of casting a draw two for two. It's just not in their wheelhouse. Uh, I suppose Breach could do it after having Brain Freeze themselves, right? But good grief, if you're already doing that, you've got all manner of win conditions. So I think we can conclude that most of the time you're going to be discarding a card. I agree. The, so in, the, in the high 90%, this, I think. This aspires to be that two-mana draw two blue card that that um, Riche always theorized about, but in practice, I think it's closer to something more like um, Knight's Whisper. Yeah. Yeah, and at sorcery speed, we've got this we've got this function covered, right? Your Knight's Whisper is even Charter Course, for Pete's sake, is easier yep. to achieve than this. Yep. So, yeah. 
It's the instant speed that you're really paying for, and you're paying a, a steep price. Yeah, even though there's one top eight for this, I'm inclined to say that it's going to have it's it's scant aberrant. few ever again. Yeah, I think this is an aberration. Yeah, I just don't see a significant upside for this. Yeah, so ignoring uh, Discoverance one performance with this, I think the over under on this is 0. 0.5. <laughs> <laughs> like, I I wonder if I'm just going to predict one. Could be. Um, honestly. Yeah, my my inclination is that that was aberrant and Discovering might be able to repeat that performance, but probably won't choose to because <laughs> I don't think this card's good enough to earn its place. Agreed. Yeah, I, actually, I am going to go with one. Feel free to take the over and, and dunk I on me there. I think I'll take but, uh, two or three just because I think he'll do it again. Okay, but fair enough. And th- th- I'll, that take could be. I'll take two. I'll take two. I think there's I'm, a good chance g- that we'll see one more, and I don't yeah. want to be wrong on that. I'm not going to be bent out of shape if that <laughs> all right. <clears throat> yeah, let's you had a chance. On. You have a chance to correct it. <laughs> nah, it's all right. It's all good. All right. <laughs> Next up, let's talk about one scheming fence. Now, this card is just riding the lightning in terms of straddling different abilities here. <laughs> UW. It's a creature human citizen. As scheming fence enters the battlefield, you may choose a non-land permanent. Activated abilities of the chosen permanent can't be activated. Scheming fence has all activated abilities of the chosen permanent except for loyalty abilities, you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to activate those abilities. And it's a 2-3. This is incredibly confusing at first yes. blush. But basically... <laughs> it's a block of text. Yeah, basically you're stealing the text box from some permanent in play. That's it. Yep. The activated abilities of the chosen permanent can't be played, so you, t- you disable it, a la Phyrexian Revoker, and Scheming Fence gains all those abilities, as long as they're not loyalty abilities. So it can't become a planeswalker. So uh, I think that uh, before we even get to the applications, let's just talk about the complexity of this. Number <laughs> one, one of the m- most complicated areas of magic is differentiating between triggered and act- activated, triggered and static abilities, replacement abilities, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think this is almost inevitably bound to generate a significant amount of confusion. Um, oh, also, yeah. let's not differentiate between let's differentiate between the as comes into play and the when it comes into play. <laughs> yeah, right. That was always the old meddling mage problem. Yep. Um, this is an as, so it happens upon resolution of the spell as it's coming into play and cannot be responded to. Exactly. So if you want to interact with the choice here, you need to interact with the spell on the stack or the permanent in question while it's on the stack, which is frustrating. Can be. Yeah. Um. So let's do the, and especially because you're going to have dueling as is, right? So it's like Revoker comes into play, <laughs> and then you play this. Uh, your opponent has Revoker, then you play this, and you steal the Revoker ability, but it's uh, not it's, an act, it's not an activated. It's ability. only the activated abilities, yeah. It doesn't inter- it doesn't yeah. disrupt continuous abilities. Well, you use yeah. the you use Revoker as an example, so I was just. Oh, I used it because this functions like a Revoker. Yeah. It, it so, does what Revoker does at okay. face value, and it has more abilities because it steals the abilities of the thing. Okay, so Laboratory Maniac is an activate. It's not. It's a replacement ability. It's, um, it's, yeah, it's a replacement. Um, what about the um, the creature that uh, Doomsday currently uses? What's it called? Uh, Thassa's Oracle. Yeah, Thassa's Oracle. Not interacted with this card at all. At all, exactly. Yeah, um, you're looking for so, cards that have colons. This, yes. this only affects abilities with colons. So in here's a card that it would it would steal the ability from. Gorilla Shaman. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The, no, the, so to, for the archetypal or a Triskelion or a Walking Ballista. 
That's right. So it's non-land, so you can't shut off Bazaar or Wasteland, unfortunately, or fetch lands. So it's not Pithing Needle, which can hit lands. This is Revoker, which can hit non-lands. So everything that Revoker applies to, this applies to. Moxin, um, I mean, you can, you can choose Planeswalkers with this. It just won't gain their loyalty abilities. Yeah, so what, then so, what? You can't use the ability if you don't have yeah, loyalty. <laughs> you're still disabling it, though, right? I mean, if you want to turn off their uh, their Narset or their Dakfade, you can do it with this just like we can with the Revoker. And, you know, the default case is mana, right? Non-land, but it hits Black Lotus and Moxon, just like Revoker does. It's going to hit the activated abilities on everything in workshops. So your your unlicensed hearse, which we were just reviewing, it's going to hit that. It's going to hit Ballista or Ravagers, even though those aren't staples anymore. And it's going to hit your creature activated abilities like Deathrite Shaman. Sensei's Divining Top is a particularly heinous uh, hit for this, <laughs> because now you have a top. Um, But this doesn't... It doesn't take... Oh, it takes all activated abilities of the permanent. So the more activated right. abilities your target has, the better you are. That's right. Uh, so Deathrite Shaman, it's going to gain both abilities. Oh, it's gonna, if, I'm sorry, it's going to gain all three abilities from Deathrite Shaman. Here's all three. Here, here's one I want to ask you about. Uh huh. Time Vault. This is good with a Time Vault. Yeah. Because that's it why turns off your opponents it's, and takes the ability, but it doesn't keep the static ability, preventing it from untapping. So it is yeah. the perfect Time Vault with your opponent. <laughs> In fact, it, it's good with your own Time Vault. Yeah, it's Miserum Transwelliquat. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and that that could be, I mean, you may have hit on one of the applications for it. You know, what's interesting. I, I'm going to point to another rules confusion here. Um, so let's <laughs> look at... Vault, time Vault's untap is a replacement ability, according to <laughs> Mark Gottlieb, right. who is the lead designer of this set, by the way. I, so I, I, it's hard to imagine that he wasn't thinking of Time Vault when he made this card, the lead designer. Could be, could be. <laughs> I, Given I want the time to vault wars. point out a key distinction between this card and Phyrexian Revoker, and it's not an intuitive one at all. The first sentence of Phyrexian Revoker is, as Phyrexian Revoker enters the battlefield, choose a non-land card name. The first sentence of this card is, as Scheming Fence enters the battlefield, you may choose a non-land permanent. Note the difference? Yes. If your yeah, opponent it's the city does not... in a bottle. It's yeah. the city in a bottle thing. Yeah. If your opponent does not already have the target card in play, play. you can't can. proactively choose it. Oh my god. If your opponent doesn't have a Time Vault in play, you can't just play this and name Time Vault. It doesn't It doesn't tell you to name a card. It tells you to name a permanent. And that so makes it, it much is worse. Yeah, it's right. It's inherently retroactive by design. Your opponent must have the thing in play already. And that is, you're right, incredibly problematic. In fact, it's worse because if there's a sort of permanent that um, activates itself to remove itself from the battlefield, then you could get really hosed. Sensei's Divining Top, you play Scheming Fence. Haha, I'm going to have my own top. No, I'll just draw with it. Oh, great. Now my fence has no target. <laughs> you know? Yep. I'll choose. It'll choose itself, I guess. I don't know. That's why it says May in the first ability. Because if this comes into play and your, you know, ostensibly your target disappears, then you, you can't be forced to choose itself. Not that there'd be any major drawback of that. It's just you can't. Um, similar things like uh, Soul Guide Lantern, for example. You want to you wanna disable their Soul Guide Lantern? Well, they just pop it in response, and you don't get any proactive ability out of this at all. So even if you could play this proactively, which it's hard to do, mind you, due to the mana cost, you, you can't. You can't put this out and stop their Lotus like yeah. you can with Revoker. Yeah, and so it's that fact among many others, but it's that fact alone that um, I think damns this card for me. The fact that it cannot be proactive against the things you need it to be is just, I think it's excluding at face value. There's um, there's another access along the anti-graveyard card 
encyclopedia that we were discussing earlier that all I think all of the played cards in vintage satisfy, and that is they can be played in advance. Um, I'll strike that. Strike that. Some of the ones that come straight out of your hand can't. Um, Ravenous Trap fails that test. Yes. But it succeeds at being free and comprehensive, so it's still playable. But all the permanent-based ones can be played in advance is what I should say. Imagine if there was like a, a Tormod's Crypt variant that just said, just said when it comes into play, get rid of their graveyard and had no other advantages. <laughs> like, yeah, it would, we wouldn't it would, play that card. It would lose the, the, the critical thing I pointed about, I pointed out, which is the ability to pick your spot. Exactly. Imagine if Endurance didn't have Flash, we wouldn't play it, right? It's the Flash, as you're observing, combined with the freeness, of course, that it makes it playable. Yeah, okay, so the fact, ignoring all things about cost and comprehensiveness, this card I think is unplayable in Vintage for its stated purpose because it can't be played in advance of the thing. Stop. Okay, that brings us to the end of our pre-chosen set of cards. So with that, thank you for listening to episode 105 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find us. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We <laughs> <laughs>